Barney, I know, is already very familiar to many of you, and so therefore needs almost no introduction. But I think it certainly is not hyperbole to say that Barney is, is one of the, the leading scholars and leading practitioners in the field of justice and peace and transitional justice specifically. I think to emphasize the practitioner part of what Barney does, it should be said that he's just come back from Juba in southern Sudan, where he's currently one of the key advisors to the southern Sudanese and the Sudanese government on issues of, of peace and justice in that country on the back of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement and in the lead up to the referendum potentially for independence in southern Sudan early next year. Barney was... <clears throat> the chief legal uh, advisor to the UN mediation team in the Juba peace talks. He's an advisor to the African Union and a whole range of, of other entities in this field of, of peace and justice. And crucially too, Barney will be one of the keynote speakers at the review conference of the International Criminal Court, which will be taking place in Kampala, Uganda, between the end of May and early June. And this really will be one of the key events, I think, in the next five or 10 years in terms of defining where this field of transitional justice goes and how we continue to grapple with the questions of global justice and what the role of the ICC will be in that context. So Barney, as you can see, is right in the thick of some of these absolutely defining processes as a scholar, as a lawyer, as a practitioner. And so it's a real honour for all of us here today, I think, to be able to welcome Barney uh, to, to speak to us this morning. Barney, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Phil, for that very warm introduction. And I kept thinking, is he talking about me or is he talking about somebody else? Um, the last few years have been a very, very steep learning curve for me. I got involved in the whole issue of justice and conflict really by, by accident, like you do with these things. In 1999, I was asked by African Rights to go to northern Uganda to look at the issue of access to justice in the conflict there. What had happened to the institutions of justice? Nobody had done a study on, on, on this matter. So I turned up in that year, the summer of that year, there was a lull in the fighting in northern Uganda. And I spent a lot of time in the displaced camps finding out whether there were any courts, what happened to the police, and what happened to disputes, what happened to the whole notion of crime prevention and criminal justice. And when there, I discovered that there was a lot of engagement about, uh, as you would imagine, about the future of the conflict and about what to do with the Lord's Resistance Army who, who had uh, brought about this situation of displacement and immense suffering and it's from those conversations that I discovered that the communities that were affected by the conflict were, were very much engaged and were very much concerned that the notion of punishing what were at that time called the rebels and bring them to trial was not in their interests. And this was a big shock to me. And we sat down again and again and talked about what sort of future they wanted to see and where the whole concept and notion of justice and accountability sat in all of this. And time and again, I was surprised by how much people 
first and foremost wanted to secure their futures. They always referred to their children, their children's children, what sort of world they would live in and whether if this situation of displacement went, went, went ahead and kept going for much longer, whether there would be a future at all. And I wrote about this when I left. I didn't go back again uh, until a few years later. It meant that when the government and the Lord's Resistance Army wanted to talk about resolving the conflict, they asked me to come along and help to advise on what to do, because by this time, uh, the International Criminal Court had become involved in the situation. And I remember being told that the government cannot talk to the LRA because that would be against international law. This was the general thinking in Kampala. Uh, the government was worried. Supporters of the government, uh, donors, as they're called in Uganda, who, who support the, the budget and fund most of these processes, would not touch this proposition. And so I went back and saw the government, went to southern Sudan and, and saw the mediator, and we had a conversation about this. So I said, well, if you take the first step, everybody will follow, and you'll find that the law will clarify itself. So he said, is that, is that right? Can we, can we go ahead and meet the LRA? What's going to happen? Because I would like to have everybody on board on this issue. So I spent some time writing a note which said uh, it was not a crime to talk and explained why it was important to focus on bringing an end to violent conflict and how that did not clash with the need to have accountability. And I started grappling with the whole notion that justice is a bigger concept than criminal justice, than international criminal justice. And it was important that we understood that the very act of bringing about a cessation of violence and beginning to set the stage for northern Uganda, southern Sudan at that time, which was affected by the conflict, that was pursuing justice in the broadest sense. But it was not easy at all uh, because of all the arguments, all the forces, if you like, that were marshaled in order to, in, their, in, in their eyes legitimately to pursue and nurture this idea of international criminal justice. I understood international criminal justice because I'm a lawyer, in fact, human rights lawyer, so I knew where uh, the impetus of that was coming from. But now you had a direct clash between these two aspirations, the aspirations for justice and the search of the people of Sudan and northern Uganda to bring to an end what had been a really devastating conflict that had displaced more than a million and killed tens of thousands, directly and indirectly. So as somebody, as a practitioner, as actors in, in, in resolving conflict, you cannot escape dilemmas. And it's not a dilemma-free area. And you cannot always resolve these dilemmas. I think the whole debate of justice and peace is still going on. 
And indeed, as, as Phil said, it's, it's one of the discussions that are going to be had in Kampala on, on the review conference of the ICC. But we were not prepared to handle this dilemma. And I was the lone voice for a very long time trying, who understood both the law and the aspiration for peace. And I felt that I was always commuting between two constituencies who never really got together and understood each other. And I felt that this divide in this no, no man's zone, there needed to be more of us who understood, if you like, the framework of international justice and criminal justice, as well as the aspirations of ordinary people for peace and indeed states. So that's a very important gap to, to position oneself in. Because increasingly, the way that either peace or international justice is organized is that it's, it's, it's polarized and people organize themselves in, in that polarity. Yet, it's, it's my firm belief that it's in the middle that those who pursue and hope to make peace should, should stand and equip themselves to understand uh, both, both aspirations and pursuits. I want to say something about the state. Uh, states are important. And in peacemaking, states are often belligerents. And sometimes, even when they're not the belligerents, conflicts take place on their territory. Almost by definition, there is no, no conflict uh, in, that covers any space that is not under the, under the notion of control of a state. But states, especially in Africa, have not organized themselves to think about peace as a process, about making peace or consolidating peace or building peace. The infrastructure of the state is predicated on the notion that the state keeps law and order and conflict is a violation of national laws. It's a law and order issue and that needs to be dealt with initially using force and criminal justice. So those two tools are the tools, are the tools, first tools of choice for states. And very often the first stage of Starting on a peace process is to persuade the state that force and justice will not be sufficient. And when you go to the state, you often encounter an absence of infrastructure even to hear you. In Kampala, there wasn't a minister in charge of peace. There was not a civil servant who was updating the peace process file. It was all ad hoc. So it became very difficult to win the argument because he didn't know who to have the discussion with. So you'd have a discussion with one individual in the government, and that's the same for southern Sudan and, and in, uh, in, in, in the DRC as well. Some of the other countries I'm familiar with, you have the discussion with one set of actors within the state, and then you realize that they're not in charge of the policy. So you have to start all over again. And in Uganda, we only began to make progress after going to the very top to persuade the president that this was worth doing. Without that, we got absolutely nowhere. So one of the things that we need to invest more in is to help states uh, organize themselves so that they can respond to conflict in a systematic manner.
So yes, you, might, you have these big challenges, but the state is utterly crucial to engaging with and resolving conflict. Not only violent conflict, but much more having an understanding of the structural nature of, of conflict. Uh, because we found that in northern Uganda, and we're finding the same in, in Sudan now, where part of my work is to try to make sure that the processes of the CPA, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, uh, move according to the timetable, but that in the long term, Sudan, whether it's one state or two states, is internally stable. But you have a difficulty with finding an internal analysis within any of the states, whether it's in Khartoum or Juba or Kampala or Kinshasa, an analysis of, of how to keep the state cohesive. And very often the tools of analysis are provided by non-state actors, but the difficulty is that non-state actors are not always trusted by the state. Uh, they, they are seen either as partisan, and if they are not nationals, if they're internationals, in, 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 in the parlance that is used, they're seen as having interests uh, that, that are located outside the state. So we do have this challenge, and we need to find ways of, of, of bringing this learning and analysis to bear, particularly within African states, in the Great Lakes uh, that face these challenges. So, so in your programming, uh, spare, spare some thought on how, how we can be more effective in dealing with states and helping states internally uh, to, to, to develop policies and structures for dealing with, with conflict. One of the things that's happening now is the way that civil society is increasingly being mobilized to intervene in conflicts. You see this in Uganda, you're beginning to see this in southern Sudan. In Darfur, uh, where, where uh, the, the, the news headlines often suggest that there's nobody left, uh, uh, in fact, there are a lot of Darfuri within Sudan who are very highly engaged with the processes that are going on uh, about, uh, about the peace talks in Doha, but also about the need to put their issues at the center of any peace settlement for Darfur. So civil society is being energized, but it's critical that civil society should have partners within the state and that civil society should be at the table when these issues are being negotiated. That's one of the discussions we're having on the, on the talks in Darfur, is to say that it's not enough for belligerents to sit around the table and, and discuss and resolve and attempt to resolve the conflict because it is civil society perspective. It is the people of Darfur, the people of the areas that are affected by the conflict who will remind everybody about what is at stake and who will bring the perspectives that force the people around the table to focus on root causes and to address the structural issues uh, that underlie these conflicts. So, so people are very central to peace processes. But having said that, we also need to find and to accept belligerence 
the way they are. Dealing with the Lord's Resistance Army, you come to that conclusion very swiftly. Uh, you can study all of your international law, and, and you may understand the structural nature of the conflict, but when you sit down with the leadership of the Lord's Resistance Army, uh, you have limited time to make certain very specific points. And you'll find very often that, yes, they're interested uh, in the future, but they're more immediately interested in their own future. So the danger is that you start to package the process exclusively to meet their concerns and needs. Now, tactically, that is the right thing to do, in my view. But it's important then that you recognize that deficiency and you make sure that as part of your peace process, you find a way of addressing the structural issues because it's not always appropriate to address them in the face-to-face -face dialogue that you're having between the belligerents because if they feel that you are raising issues that they're not raising themselves, uh, then you begin to lose them. In, in, in the Ugandan peace talks, we did this by making sure that other actors came around the table to discuss the root causes of the conflict. Uh, Joseph Cornyn was particularly interested in a theoretical debate about the root causes. Uh, he was operating on the basis of uncertainty about his own future. And, and there were times when we structured the debate in such a way that he was left out of the debate because articulate middle-class people are framing the argument. And they, they don't carry the AK-47s. The people who carry the AK-47s have other priorities, and they, they articulate them differently. So you have to structure your process so that nothing, nobody gets left behind. It may mean that you have parallel processes, uh, which is what we're trying to encourage in Darfur, is make sure that you continue consulting the communities on all of the issues that are on the agenda, and you have some representation around the table. And, and with the LRA, it was not possible to do that to a very large extent, but you needed to, uh, to, to be aware of that, uh, uh, of the need to, to carry everyone with you and carry all issues with you in the negotiations. So don't forget, don't take your eyes off the key parties. And don't ignore the structural issues either. And that's why I go back to the first point I made, because states are very critical in dealing with structural issues of conflict. They must understand that a process of peace goes beyond the signatures and is a longer-term investment. And that needs to be reflected in the accords, but even if it's not reflected in, in, in the peace agreements and they're deficient, it is still the duty of the state to make sure that those issues are addressed. And how we persuade the state is, is, is a subject of another discussion. So realism is important about what you can achieve, the limited time that you have to engage with belligerents. You take them as you find them. With the Lord's Resistance Army, you take them with their arrest warrants and all the fears and disruptions that brings. Uh, in, in southern Sudan, where, where, where I'm working now, uh, 
they're not yet a fully formed state. People still think and, and identify themselves uh, according to their ethnic backgrounds, according to, to their political uh, party affiliations. There's not yet a vision, a common vision of, of what it means to be uh, Sudanese or Southern Sudanese. And that's how, where you've got to start and before, uh, before moving on to develop a broader vision, which would be the basis of stability in the longer term. So, in conclusion, it is critical that we focus on the state. It's critical that we focus on people who are affected by the conflict. Because the people without the state uh, will be shortchanged in the long term. And the state without the pressure from the people uh, will not adopt the sorts of policies that will ensure uh, lasting stability. And very often the analysis is driven by the people and provided by the people. Um, the expression civil society is often used, but civil society can be very highly uh, undemocratic and unrepresentative. So let's, uh, let's keep a lookout for that, that the best mobilised, the best funded get their voices heard, but not those who are unmobilised, not those who are well read. We mustn't allow uh, peace processes uh, to become a, a preserve of the articulate middle classes. Uh, if you take the Lord's Resistance Army rebellion, it's not a middle class rebellion. In fact, it is, it is, it is a rebellion against the elites and, and the middle classes. So we have to be humble about what our own uh, analysis can achieve and, and to be aware of its, its potential to alienate uh, the disgruntled but armed of Africa. So let's shape our responses to, to, to the needs that we encounter. By all means, have a vision of where you want to go, have a clear analysis of the conflict, but just keep it in the back of your pocket uh, if it's not going to, to, to unlock the, uh, the situation. Uh, but by all means, take it out as soon as, as, soon as the, the time is opportune and make sure that those who are in a position to, to restructure the society uh, have the benefit of that analysis. The future. I think that as Africa becomes more and more urbanized, and which will happen uh, gradually, but that is uh, the direction, different forms of conflict will come to the fore. At the moment, the conflicts in Africa are much more rurally based conflicts. Uh, they're about access to resources and a sense of marginalization. The f in the future, the conflicts will move to urban areas and will probably take different forms. So it's important that our analysis is not locked into an agrarian, a rural, a pastoral uh, vision of Africa and its conflicts. And so that's, that's the last word looking to the future, that the conflicts will change. 
And if we don't uh, keep abreast with the social changes and economic changes that are going on, the conflicts of the future will take us by surprise. I've said precious little about, about transitional justice issues, and but we can discuss that. I see that there are, uh, there's another session on that, and we can engage on those issues. So I'll finish on that note. Thank you.